Welcome to Saltier Politics. We are doing this intro having had a, almost a whole glass of wine. A whole bottle, actually. we interviewed the amazing Jessica Kogan, CMO of Cameron Hughes Wines, and she's Chief Digital Officer of Vintage Wine Estates. Yeah, so Jessica was nice enough before this interview to send us a case of wine. <laughs> Um, this is our first time drinking this wine is our on first, the podcast. This is the first time. No, it's not true. We've drank alcohol on the podcast before with our uh, guests. Not wine. Though. Not wine, though. But this is an excellent um, bottle of wine. I, and I'm, I have to, I feel like the need to promote this wine, not because we have Jessica on the podcast, but because it's really, really, really good. Um, we are drinking the Cameron Hughes Lots 671 2016 Meritage and, uh, from Napa Valley. And go to Cameron Hughes, chwine.com. Yep. Uh, and order it. And she said it's probably 24, 25 bucks a bottle, and you're drinking essentially a 60 or 70 or $80 bottle of wine. Truly take our word for it. Um, Emily and I are aficionados when it comes to drinking. It's true. And um, this is a really, really, really good bottle of wine. But really highly recommend it. So, Emily. I think it, we... <laughs> it's been... A, okay, Emily's... Uh, apparently, Emily's got the giggles, but... I have the giggles so hardcore. Oh. From, from, from drinking um, a couple of glasses of wine. But... I will say this, um, Emily, we haven't seen each other in a couple of weeks. Well, we haven't done the podcast. We have seen each other we because, did. as you know, I was training for all this time to run a 5K. I failed miserably because I developed this horrible neck condition that I just found out last week would probably necessitate surgery. Um, so you might be seeing me in a neck brace the next time you see me, which is neither good nor funny, although you probably will find it hilarious. <laughs> But um, we know <laughs> you know, you'll make fun of me, but I'll, I'll tweet a picture out of how ridiculous I look. But um, because I couldn't run, or as Jerry Seinfeld said, I chose not to run. Um, well, Julie, you did place third in I, your age group. I did. Well, here's the thing. So Emily, this is going to get both of us kicked out of, of, of the authorities who are in charge of this because you're not allowed to transfer your number to anybody. But you ran in my place as me. And here's the thing, Emily. I believe I ran in the 40 or above category. Correct. You are how old? 29. You're 29. And yet you came in fourth, I believe, in the 40 or above age group. Why could you not have brought it home for me? I know. You know what? It's, I don't, I don't have an excuse, but I was just, I was just so happy running across. I texted you. you. I said, they they, look tired. I said, I said, they have my age, which is 46 on the bib. So please, when you show up, look tired because, uh, you obviously don't look 46. But uh, you were there with with a sign and cheering. I was. I was. And I think that gave me the extra little push. What I like is that we brought friends with us, and uh, the minute you started running, we went to Burger King. <laughs> <laughs> she went to Burger King. We went to Burger King and waited for you to finish the five k. I did not eat a Burger King, although I wanted to. You got um, coffee immediately. I got coffee at Burger King immediately. Other people got um, chicken, chicken nuggets. Chicken nuggets at I believe eight o'clock in the morning. Yep. And um, you guys did a great job. And I, from what I understand, you said it was a very tough course. And you did it. So congratulations. But that just oh. means we're waiting for you to run the next So that's one. the part that sucks. So the part that sucks is I made a commitment to run a 5K. So I will have to start training all the way from scratch. And uh, I feel like all this summer when I tortured myself with running, because as you and everybody who listens to this podcast knows, I hate running. And well, we um, did listen to God. No, we listened to Britney Spears on the way. That was awesome. We did. We listened to Britney on the way to the podcast, uh, podcast to the to the race, and we listened to the Spice Girls on the way back from the race, and not just because Sean Spicer decided that he was gonna by the sc- way screw up our Spice Girls love. He, by, he ruined by, everything. He he danced to spice up your life. Uh, on as his first dance on Dancing with the Stars, and I was furious. I texted you, and you're like, "I don't watch reality," and I knew that, but I just needed to share that with you because I knew you'd see memes. Well, it's very funny because um, last weekend I had to. My friend Jen is the book agent for Rashad Jennings, who means nothing to me, but might mean something to people who either watch Dancing with the Stars or like the Giants. And Rashad Jennings was coming doing a book signing. <laughs> near my apartment so she insisted that I go so I go and I bring my son and 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 you know we get a picture with Rashad or I don't get a picture with him but (laughs) he gets a picture with Rashad Jennings and afterwards I say to my friend Jen who the hell is Rashad Jennings 
And she goes, he's a former giant. And I said, okay, that, that means nothing to me. And she goes, well, if it means anything, he, he, he won Dancing with the Stars last season or two seasons ago. And I said, that actually means less to me than football. Neither of those things mean anything to me, but I think I'm alone in that. I think you, people are either into football or Dancing with the Stars, and I'm not into either. I'm embarrassed by reality TV. I feel like, um, like why do I want to see people get humiliated? Well, one of the things for me is just because a lot of times at work, because it can be so heavy with a lot of different political, mm-hmm. different events that happen, that sometimes my suspension of disbelief just needs to be. That's what Lifetime Movie Network is for. Yes. Like you got a good Tori Spelling, Lifetime Movie Network, like Tori Spelling's husband slept with her mother secretly and had a baby. And I may need he to might try to kill up. her. He might try to kill her. And that's what Lifetime's for. Not, not reality TV. Because reality TV is like real people. I know that's true. That's very true. Um, but like, do I need to see Sean Spicer getting completely was, humiliated? The I answer is to, no. I had to turn the channel. I was, I was embarrassed and uncomfortable. You know what I'm embarrassed about for Sean Spicer? And I sincerely mean this. Like there are people in his previous job. Um, Dana Perino is a great example. Um, Didi Myers, George Stephanopoulos, um, Nicole Wallace, I don't think had, his, his job, she was the comms director. But I mean, there are plenty of people, Joe Lockhart, um, I can go on and on, of people who had were at the podium at the White House. And they are doing well. I mean, they're doing really well. And they're holding on to their self-respect while they're doing it. And is Sean Spicer really that desperate? And everybody, when I tweeted this out, everybody said, well, you know, he's making $125,000, you know, for, for the show. And if he goes on, he'll make another twenty-five or X number of money. What people don't get is people in that position after they leave that job, I, I get that it's a, a lot of money to be on Dancing with the Stars. But, but when you have that job and you leave that job in good standing, you make in the multiples of that. You just do. Right. And... If he's doing this for the money, that's sad because it just goes to show how his career path has been completely cut off as a result of that. And if he's doing that for other reasons, like celebrity reasons, it just goes to show how much Donald Trump has absolutely influenced this reality TV. I mean, reality TV, which I don't watch, but you do, you watch to make fun of it. Right. It's not for real. And then suddenly you have this reality TV star becoming president. Um, you have the former governor of Texas, Rick Perry, becoming... De- Energy Who also was on Dancing with the Stars. Also on Dancing also with the terrible. Stars, right? Um, and suddenly that's because, like, you had Amorosa, Amorosa, is that her name? Who was on The Apprentice, apparently. She's in the cabinet. Um, what are we talking about here? Like, is this really? And then Sean Spicer goes on to Dancing with the Stars. I don't know if he's still on or not. I really don't care. But is this really where we are? That serious people either have to make money this way because they can't make it any other way? Or they're doing it because they think this is how you curry favor with Donald Trump, that if you become a reality celebrity, he really can't go after you. Like, what are we talking about here? I know. It's, it's, and is it, is it all about getting the followers and getting and having that longevity? Because once you're on the shows, you get more followers on Instagram and Twitter. I don't know. I but- guess you could monetize it, right? I mean, if you have followers, you become an influencer. I mean, look at the Kardashians, but you don't expect the Kardashians to actually be serious people. I mean, Sean, the thing about Sean Spicer, who, who I know not well, but slightly um, from Fox and from other stuff, he was a normal um, operative. I mean, he was, a, he was the RNC press secretary. He was, you know, he had a legit career in politics. And I just feel like everything that Donald Trump touches turns to like gaudy nonsense. And I kind of feel sorry for him. Like, I don't take any pleasure in Sean Spicer coming out there in a, in a bright yellow, neon, green, yellow, whatever it was, shirt, dancing to the Spice Girls. Like, I think it's humiliating. He's my age. The guy's a former military guy. Um, who, this is not what we, what we no. go to college for, right? No, it's not. And Because I'm really enjoying seeing the former Bachelorette on Dancing with the Stars, but she's, she's a reality for- star. She's the former Bachelorette. Yeah. yeah. And just, I don't, listen, I don't mind seeing... Step. I don't mind seeing the Kardashians and Dancing with the Stars. Well, I don't watch Dancing with the Stars, but I wouldn't mind seeing celebrities and Dancing with the Stars. Like, you get it. But this is somebody who spoke for the United States from the podium of the White House. And to watch him be on Dancing with the Stars, like, really? This is your next move after Dancing with the Stars? After speaking on behalf of this nation? Right. 
Um, I don't know. It's it's upsetting, and I don't. I, I feel sorry well, for him. I'm not actually making fun of him. I actually feel sorry for him. I hope I hope he finds his way back to. Um, I don't know what to reconciliation. Well, when, when this fever eventually breaks, which it will. Well, we'll we'll be talking about it. Um, I I guess is he still on the show? By the way, yes, he still is. I feel like people should get ready to for our interview, but then after our interview, look forward to us talking about the Ukraine situation and the whistleblower. Because I think... Yes. Because that is also something I am salty about. Me too. Um, so let's get right into the interview with Jessica, which is awesome. Julie and I had a ton of fun with that. We did, and not just because we drank her delicious <laughs> wine, Cameron Hughes. And 20, are still drinking it. Yes. Lot 671, 2016, Meritage, um, which I would call Meritage. Um, which Jessica said was a Bordeaux blend or just a Bordeaux, which no wonder I love it because I love Bordeaux wines. Anyway, it's very good. Um, chwine.com, go get it. Trust us on this. You might not agree with us politically. You might not agree with us ideologically. Take our word for it. We know good liquor. It's true. <laughs> it's really good. Welcome to Saltier Politics, Jessica Kogan, CMO of Cameron Hughes Wine and Chief Digital Officer of Vintage Wine Estates. We are psyched to have you here. And we're really psyched, Jessica, because we pre-gamed a little bit. Um, you were nice enough to send a case, which was um, incredibly generous of you, but you were nice enough to send us a case of your wine, and so what are we to do but decide to pop it open before doing the interview with you? So we are sitting here sipping a Cameron Hughes Lot 671 2016 Meritage, and it's really good. Oh, Delicious. Such a yummy wine. It's so good. It's, it's my type of wine. It's dry. It's, oh, it's great. I love it. Um, tell, us, tell us about the business. It's a really unusual business model. Sure. So I uh, started this company in 2001 with Cameron, and the idea was that, um, well, it really begins with we really like nice, expensive wines. Um, but back in 2001, we were struggling and we're like, we can't afford super expensive wine. And we want, and why can't these wines be less expensive? Why can't we find a way to access these like wines that are $50, $60 a bottle and bring it to customers at a really fair price. There must be a way, there must be an inefficiency in the market. And after some, you know, some looking at the, at the wine market and seeing that there's actually really quite a bit of bulk wine at the very high end that was being sold to large companies, we're like, wait a minute, we can do that. We can, we can buy that very high end wine and sell it under our label and sell it at half the price. And um, the really the model really really took off in 2005 when we were selling at Costco, and then then it really went crazy when the internet really became um, true e-commerce in 2010. Um, while we were all doing e-commerce in like Amazon and eBay from like 2005 to 2010, customers really weren't buying wine online. They started in 2010 after a couple of cases came before the Supreme Court and enabled uh, customers to buy wine online um, where they weren't able to do that before. And so thus bloomed Cameron Hughes Wine, which really we like to think is like the forefather or foremother of Warby Parker and Everlane and, you know, the digitally native uh, companies that, that sell products by disintermediating in the market. So explain this, though, because it kind of doesn't make sense. If I have uh, owned a vineyard and I've developed this very high-end wine and I'm selling it for, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 bucks a bottle, what's my incentive to, to give it to you and let you sell it, sell it under your label? Sure. It's really expensive to grow grapes and then crush them and then age them. And so they don't want to lose... Um, the capital that they put into making that wine. At the same time, they don't want to depress their price by having an oversupply in the market. So they do need to find discrete ways to sell that wine so that customers believe that the market is short on their wine. And we'll never know whose wine we're drinking, right? Never. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you can. we have had 
I would say thousands of customers um, talk about it online and try and figure out where the source wineries are, you know, where the source wineries are. Um, and we always provide, obviously, Appalachian and vintage and and all of, like the the very important information about um, the wines like birth. But we never disclose where we buy the wine from. Um, out of respect for the growers who are doing an amazing job, but really also, um, you know, want to control their market and and want to build their brand in the way that works for them. Do you ever look online and and see that people are guessing and and figure out they've guessed the right wine? All the time. And do they get it sometimes? Um, I would say those that are super cork dorky and really like, I call it like fashionistas, you know, like super into it they will at times figure it out, um, especially cab drinkers and, and actually meritage drinkers. They really, really get into kind of the provenance of the wine and then kind of tracing back the history. And it's, it's so amazing to see the discussion. It's incredibly robust and it's exciting. You know, it's so awesome to see customers so into something that you're doing and that really at the end of the day is like a value to them. Um, you know, it, it just feels really good. So what I found was really cool about you is you were kind of the brains behind the e-commerce business side of Cameron Hughes wine, which is really what took it off the ground. And you think of mostly men kind of starting this e-commerce, but you were Mm -hmm. really at the forefront of that. Can you just, how did you know, or did you just have this instinct in, because I saw that you were in fashion before and you had, um, so talk about that. So, um, so the wine industry, so I'm sure that the two of you know that the wine industry is very male-dominated. Right. And so you would think that um, these ideas will come from a dude. And um, to be perfectly candid, at the time that I was thinking e-commerce for wine, everyone in the industry was like, you're insane. There's no way anybody will ever buy online, wine online. They will only go to the grocery store and or their, their local wine shop. Nobody will ever do it. Um, but for me, I saw the opportunity in that, you know, the, the, the amazing thing about the Internet and, and the world of online is that you can provide a narrative. And the narrative is very difficult to communicate in the wine store and very difficult to communicate in the grocery store. Most people, you know, go to that grocery aisle and they're like, oh, my God, like, what do I buy? I don't even know what to buy. I think I'll just buy, like, the really nice label. And so for those of us who feel extremely intimidated when it comes to wine, me being one of them, um, the Internet was just like the perfect medium to have that conversation and then apply the principles of e-commerce. And so we did that, you know, starting in 2005. And I would say it really, you know, for us, it just really took off when we started doing videos. Um, and I always felt Cam was just like an amazing spokesperson when it came to when it comes to wine. I mean, he's very, um, he's very easy to talk to. He doesn't like talk over you in terms of your knowledge of wine and is very much about what you like. And he really explains very clearly what the wines are about. And so that's really like how it all came together. I had the right person to put in front of a video in, you know, in front of a camera, like kind of pre YouTube. And then the back end system that was, you know, being, um, built um, by so many companies out there that specialize in e-commerce, you know, the, the software. So just like the two came together and I was like, we're going to do this. And in 2010, it just like totally just exploded. And ever since then, it's been kind of amazing to watch it grow. I, I think that's really cool because Julie, with politicians and often a lot of people you work with, it's about setting the right narrative. And, no question. And, and I just find that so interesting because if you, once you get that and, and that catches on, it can completely redefine like the wine or the business and take a lot of the intimidation out of it. Have you found that as a woman, it's, it's a little harder for you to break into this? Um, you said it was a male-dominated industry, and that's obviously true, but have you found generally that being taken seriously in business, not just, not just the wine business, but generally in business has hurdles because of the fact that you are a woman? Can I get salty? You can get salty anytime. <laughs> you come to the right place, my friend. Please. Can I get salty? I, I just, I, I think that, um, well, I, from my own experience, it is very difficult. And the reason why it, I find it very difficult personally 
um, is because, especially in a male-dominated industry, it's like a club, right? It's like um, you walk into a room, um, you know, at the executive level, and it's like seven guys and one girl. And just like natural dynamics of interaction make it very difficult for you to break in to whatever it is that they have going on between them, consciously or unconsciously. And so it makes it really challenging for me as a woman to feel confident when I want to say certain things. And over time, I've learned to just kind of do it the way I want to do it and be myself, but it took years. And now I'm beginning to see more women at the executive level and especially the company that acquired Cameronese Wine, um, there are a lot of female, top female executives. And it's so cool to walk into an executive team meeting and to have like three women and seven guys. <laughs> do, you, do you find that women, because you've been around um, and, and actually were the, one of the pioneers of this e-commerce business, that younger women are coming to you looking for advice or do you feel like they decided at this point they're going to try to do things on their own and do things in a different way or, or maybe come up with a new generational way of doing things or uh, how do you feel about that so they're i i feel like they're asking a lot of interesting questions that i never asked for example we just interviewed um this lovely um user acquisition um uh candidate who uh has worked at some some great places and it's she's she's a female and I was interviewing her as the, you know, as the last person, and she looked at me and she said, is this a safe environment for women to work in? Because I only see guys here. Interesting. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, I would never have asked that question when I was interviewing, like going through my career. So I think the questions that, that, that these women are asking are super good. Like, I would never have had the balls to do that. Um, I also find that a, a lot of women will come to me with, you know, how do I break in? What do I need to say? Like, how do I interact um, in meetings? You know, just kind of like tips and tricks. Um, I don't know if they're necessarily forging their own way. I think what they're trying to do is make sure that they can, like, achieve some type of equality um, in the workplace because, in truth, like, Yes, I'm in a male-dominated industry, but I was also in the fashion industry, which is male-dominated as well. Women, there are a lot of women in mid-level ranks, but it was all men at the top. What advice would you give to women who want to kick in the door the way you did in your industry? Uh, I mean, it, you just its it, you just have to, I mean, it's like said so often, but you just, you really have to believe in yourself. You just have to believe that what you're saying is right and be okay if it's wrong. Like really be okay with it and, and forgive yourself for being wrong. I feel that we women are raised to be like, we've got to do this right. We have to do that right. You know, you have to look a certain way. You have to act a certain way. And I still believe it. And that's very prevalent now. I have two young daughters, uh, 14 and 12, and I see that. You know, they're they're trying to meet some, some like, some exceptionalism that is put in front of them that their peer that that their male peers aren't and when you when women go into the workplace you know they they walk in there thinking i have to do everything right and if i do it wrong i'm of no value i definitely see that even when my bro my younger brother answers a question even though he's wrong he'll say it with authority and i'm like you made up total bullshit and my brother's like well it sounded good didn't it and I was just like, that is the confidence that that it, it, women need. <laughs> well, I mean, I think it's that, like, Emily, that's so well said, because I have always found in, in, in my universe that the, the, the top executives, male executives, can sell you the Brooklyn Bridge, even if the Brooklyn Bridge isn't available for you to buy. They will sell it to you, and you will buy it, and you will end up with nothing. They literally... Are, they walk into a room and they're like, they're on, they feel powerful, they feel like they can do it, they feel like they can own it. And I have yet, in my like 25 years of experience, met, like I, I've met a handful, like maybe four, five women who 
are like that. The rest are just like, it's too much for me. I can't deal. Like, I'm happy at my level. You know, it's just, it, they don't feel like they can get ahead. It's interesting because I have younger women coming up to me asking me the question I just asked you all the time. And I never know the tension between telling them to just keep your head down, shut up, ignore the noise and just power through or whether you actually become a disruptor and speak up and and make your opinions heard early on um, and establish yourself as somebody who's a troublemaker. I, I don't know the answer to that. Obviously, the latter is the kind of thing you want to inspire women to be. But I'm not sure practically in business whether that's an effective strategy. What do you think about that? The complexity in that question. Um, I will say that um, at the beginning, I think it's I think it's really important to for women to establish boundaries. Um, and what and and because you're asking me like a couple of things, right? Like, should they walk in and be like, "Let me show you how it's going to be done," or "Let me be like the greatest salesperson and and show you how I'm going to make a difference," and and or just be like, "Okay, like tell me what to do, and you know, I'll I'll spit it back at you and and do it exactly how you want want it to be done." And it, I really actually think it's really important to find that very that that middle, right, where Yes, you do what they're asking, but you also push. You push for more. You, you constantly push until you break through. And, but when you break through is like the super scary moment, right? Because that's where they're all looking at you and you are generally alone because other, very few other women have broken through. Nothing is scary. Yeah, you're right. I mean, to me, nothing is scarier than the fact that when you have employees, you realize all your decisions affect them, um, affect their livelihood, affect their families. And that's a pretty terrifying notion um, to think about. It's so, it's so crazy. I mean, it's just, it really is. And I, I will say, I mean, I just, I, I really, we talk, you know, the Me Too movement and we talk so much about, you know, women being more empowered and having more say and, I definitely think the convers like the the fact that we're having the conversation is amazing. I am still not seeing um, that empowerment in the workplace um, because there aren't enough women who are making it through. Um, and like a you know Sheryl uh, Sandberg's book um, that she wrote a couple of years ago. Right. What was it? What was the name of it? Was it Lean, Lean in. Lean in. Yep. And I. I, I, when I read the book, I was le- I was personally just a little disappointed because Cheryl speaks from a place of having access to everything. No question, I had the same reaction. I, so annoying. And I was, I was incredibly so. I was so annoyed, and I'm like, the book should be called Lean Over, because <laughs> you can literally. Cause I'm, we're cheersing to. We're that. cheersing to this. By the way, we're clinking. <laughs> we we just so you know we're drinking your wine out of um, a Princeton Day School tumblr which my, my high school sent me as a gift many years ago and that's how that's how classy we are by the way so yes keep going please it, it, and it tastes good it, it tastes, tastes good. good it doesn't matter about the glass it tastes great we may be but slightly I, drunk right now but that's neither here nor there keep going i, I love that <laughs> it, we're, we're lubing our conversation we're exactly. lubing it up um but that was like a very frustrating book for me to read because i actually felt it was so unrealistic and you know it it is so women are faced with this very hard choice um they are you know asked to be perfect then they get married then they have children and then they're asked to make the choice like do i stay with my kids or do i go to work do you do you ever feel that by the way let me interrupt you on that because now that now that we're getting into the heart of this um i have a seven-year-old you said you have a a 14 and a 12-year-old do you ever feel that do you ever feel like your kids are saying to you and emily can jump in um as somebody who may or may not one day be a mother but uh, probably emily you can relate to this as well but um the part where you're saying honey i need to go to i I need to go to work right now or i need to focus on this email or i need to focus on the sales pitch or whatever you might be focusing on and i can't um focus on you right now and it's one thing for Sheryl Sandberg, who I appreciate the tension. I mean, obviously, no matter how much money you have, you're still a parent and nobody can replace that. But for Sheryl Sandberg to have all the access to childcare that she needs, not worrying about how much it's going to cost her, not worrying. Um, and I think both you and I are, are probably on the more fortunate side of this discussion as well. But for the average mom, 
not worrying about having to, to run home because you can't afford a babysitter or, or whatever the reason, um, that's an awful tension to, to have, I think, for, for, for mothers especially. I don't feel like men necessarily have that same concern. I don't want to generalize, but um, I, I, don't, I don't see my guy friends thinking, oh my God, if I stay an extra half hour at this business meeting and not be around for my son or my daughter, that this is somehow going to impact them psychologically the way that you and I probably think it might. Totally. I mean, I, I, I'm, my kids are, um, I've beat parents at, at my kids' schools and I have a lot of friends who have children and, um, you know, it is in, in their relationships with, with their, you know, with the father, it, they, the men don't have the same, exactly what you just said, like psychological yearning that I think we feel like very, it's like almost an evolutionary instinct that we can't tamper down, right? It's like, why can't I just not worry about this? Why can't I just focus on my work and not worry that my kid is in good hands or that I have to go pick her, pick her up or I have to go take her here and you need to schedule this? Like, it doesn't even cross the mind of my male counterpart. I think all have children. I think though that's part of the thing that makes women great leaders because you have that empathy and you have that knowing, you know, these moms have to get home to their kids. And it's just about leadership too that I don't think we see a lot in politics when only men are in charge because there's just not that extra level of empathy. Even when you were talking about just having different, employing different people and thinking about them, I think that women especially bring that to the table. We are certainly not seeing any empathy right now, that's for sure. <laughs> that's true, but Emily, I think Emily raises an interesting point. Um, I've had, I just remember I was about 30, uh, which was a while ago, a long time ago, but I was fortunate enough to be in a position where I, where I could hire people at the time. And this one guy shows up and asks for some astronomical amount of money. And I said to him, well, that's interesting because the, the person coming in before you asked for, I think, ten dollars or $15,000 less than you did. And this guy, who was, let me add, unqualified for this job, looks at me with all the self-confidence in the world, and he goes, yeah, but I'm worth it. And he said it with so much self-confidence that I hired him. And by the way, I had to fire him later because he wasn't worth it. But the fact that he <laughs> proceeded... <laughs> Maybe, maybe only 30-year-old could fall for that scam, but he, was, and I, by the way, I borrowed his, um, I borrowed his logic uh, later on in my life when I went to work, this is a story nobody knows, but you'll appreciate this as a woman in business. When I, when I first decided I wanted to work at Fox, um, I was working at C, I had just ended a contract, which I decided not to renew at CNBC, and I um, decided I wanted to go to Fox, and I, everybody asked why, and I said, you know, it's, it's, there's nobody better to learn from in terms of good television than, than Fox News. I mean, whatever else you might think about Roger Ailes, he was a genius, and he was very good at TV, and I said, I want to learn from him, and they said, but you're a liberal, how it? And I said, I, I don't care, I want to work there. And my agent at the time said to me, um, you will never get a job at Fox News. You are, um, you're, you're not the right ideology, you are not the right height, you are not the right hair color. Um, it's never going to happen. And I, by the way, I, yeah, and I think, and, and by the way, I think I might have been newly pregnant at the time, so I certainly wasn't the right weight either. Um, and uh, and he just said, it's never going to happen. And I said, you want to bet? And I and I kind of walked in with that same attitude that that guy had walked in probably um, years earlier, and just walked in and said, you know, I'm worth it. You got to hire me. And I don't know how I pulled that off either, but but it worked. Um, so, uh, it's that kind of attitude and confidence that I think women don't necessarily have. And that's, that's something that hopefully, I mean, look at you, your example is a great example. You were coming up in 2001, the internet bubble had just burst. Um, mm -hmm. the economy was in a recession, as I recall. Um, yeah. I assume you did this before 9-11, but maybe not. People's priorities were elsewhere at the time. Mm -hmm. And nevertheless, you did it. I mean, you had the confidence to go to a male-dominated industry. Move. Did you move to Napa from wherever you were so living? I moved, I moved from New York. I right. lived in New York for, for a long time, and I moved to San Francisco. And our company is based out of San Francisco. Right. Um, because we really are in many, we've really become a technology company. In right. Um, and um, being here was always really good. But you don't have to be in Napa to get samples and sourcing. I mean, 
we go to Napa and Sonoma all the time to, you know, Central Coast, everywhere. But you just, you don't have to be there. A lot of the blending happens here. Um, and then the production, the production piece happens in Napa and Sonoma and up in wine country. Tell us about your favorite wine that you've done. Uh, I mean, if you can, or you don't want to choose between your children, I assume. But tell us what uh, you personally I like mean, to drink. I, you know, I... I'm really um, a red blend person, and I love red blends because they're very balanced, and they have really good tannin structure. I do like tannin. A lot of people don't like tannin because, you know, it makes their mouth dry. Um, And I do like the fruitiness that you get from a blend. Um, So I'm very, very partial to red blends, and, you know, back in the day, red blends were very out of vogue, and now they've become quite popular. Um, I also am a very big Cabernet fan, and um, I like really rich, um, very styled Cabernets. Um, So I don't like the stuff that's just like super easy to drink. I like the stuff that really just has a little bit of a kick to it and just like has a lot of complexity in your mouth. And I know I'm sounding like a little bit of a cork dork, and I'm totally not, but I just like wines that have a little more throttle. By the way, I'm using the word cork dork from yeah. now on. I really like that. <laughs> You've you just brought that expression to the East Coast. Thank you very much. Yep. That is added. Uh, isn't it? It's, it's like fashionista, right? I mean, it's like <laughs> obsessive. It's an obsessive person who's like, who is just so passionate about the category. And there's just, there's, there are a lot of people who are really into wine. Um, and, you know, it's a little bit different for the millennials. Um, you know, their tastes are definitely shifting away from, from wine more so than Gen X and boomers. Um, so it'll be really interesting to see what happens. What are they into? Emily, what are you guys into? Well, my friends are in the IPAs, which are disgusting. Oh, I agree. Personally disgusting. But a lot of, I think, specialty cocktails and stuff like that. Really? I feel like I'm, I'm a Gen Xer and I feel like we went through that phase about 10 years ago. No. Especially mixologists and just like infusing it with lavender. Oh, stuff like that. Lavender, yeah, the the lavender cocktail, absolutely. I mean, Emily's totally right. Like aviation, huge. Um, um, Local artisanal beer is very very hot. Um, Cocktails are very hot because liquor is a little bit less expensive and definitely gives you an effect a little faster. And then the the big one, which is cannabis. That's true. I guess I never thought about the fact that cannabis is now replacing wine as a as a method of achieving, I guess, something different, but still the same. Right. Some relaxation. Um, relaxation. Are you guys going to potentially expand into alcohol then, or even cannabis? Do you think? Um, I mean, Cameron Hughes Wine will not, but for vintage wine estates. Uh, they are absolutely looking at infusions. So um, CBD-infused wine is definitely something they're experimenting with. Um, but I think before you see that, what you're going to see a proliferation of is wine cocktails. Oh, so, what is that? Um, like Emily was saying, like cocktails are super hot. So the wine industry is kind of... Do you remember Bartles and James? Oh, God, that stuff was so bad. That stuff ruined my college years. Don't, is that really coming back? <laughs> Are you kidding me? I, I have it. nightmares about Bartles and James. In like sexy packaging. Oh. You know, like Bartles and James. Remember it was like the two. Yes, like, those two guys. But what was the tagline? I was like Bartles and those two old guys. Bartles, I forgot what it was. It was like two old guys from Maine or whatever their accent was. Yes. Uh, like sitting on the porch. Yes. Like, oh. you know, I, you know I, went to, um, I went to, I went to, you'll appreciate this being from the West Coast. I, my best friend from college um, got married in Carmel last year. And um, that was part of my toast to her, that she loves her husband, but not as much as she used to love Bartles and James. And everybody almost, everybody laughed at the wedding because everybody virtually threw up in their mouth. And I can't believe, this is all Generation X people, though. I can't believe that anybody would ever drink that stuff again. Really? Yeah. Oh, God. Yes, because it's, you know, it's it's not super expensive, right? It's very accessible. Um, It's well distributed. And um, it's it has a sweeter profile, um, and it's a and it's an infusion. And millennials love infusions. 
Do you know what we're talking about, Emily? Have you ever I, heard of Bartles and I, James? I do not know what that is. Oh, God. It's like Bartles and James. It, 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 but I oh. feel like if you packaged California it cool. Wine oh, I'm sure, by the way. And you like did like, you know, uh, what's a seltzer, the hard seltzer that's like super popular now? I don't know. White Claw. Oh, true. If you just, or White Claw. Yeah. I don't know if you that just, is. Yeah, everybody's like. I'm, pour, I'm pouring white. myself more of your wine yes. just to get the notion of Bartles and James out of my head. Yeah, but like, I feel like if you package oh, something in a cool way, people. Here, Emily, have a, a pa- yeah, finish the bottle some. because this is absolutely repulsive <laughs> that we're talking about this. But go ahead. But I feel like. By the way, I have to go pick up my seven-year-old in a couple of hours, which is going to be fantastic. But let's keep talking. <laughs> but, oh, but, you're gonna, it's going to be the best pickup ever. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> How was your day, sweetie? How was your day? I don't know. The mommy needs to take a nap right now. But go ahead. <laughs> but I feel like it's we're very. little helper. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I feel like the packaging, it's all about that for my generation. You put, you put something pretty shitty into a cool package. We're super into it. Uh, I don't know. I do. I have to say, there's better chemistry now than Bartles and James. Like way better. So the 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 wine cocktails that are coming out are actually pretty tasty, and the the caloric content is really well managed. So the like it's not. It literally isn't as sugary, Julie. It's like it is a lot lot better. Remember, it's it Zima. Has a, um, is that? Tried it. No, Zima was a thing back like 20, 30 years ago. Oh, like yes, mo- yes, yes. That stuff was, oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's way back. Yeah. Yes, that was part, that was actually after Bartles and James. I think it was concurrent right? with. That was like, like early 90s? Yes. Bartles and James was early 90s, totally. No, that was like 80s, like late 80s, 85. It had to have been. Bartles and James? Yeah. Oh, really? No, I think that was a college thing. Well, maybe. I don't know. I, I graduated college in 95. I mean, uh, uh, yeah, I would, oh God, when I was in New York, we would just drink those, like, you know, those big bottles oh, <laughs> of beer God, that, that, weren't, is... that weren't beer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I, I drank, I didn't really, I didn't really get into alcohol all through college because I kept trying to like gin and I really, oh, and okay. I really hate gin and I, to this day, really hate gin and I, for some reason, never discovered anything. Oh, and I also used to drink. Remember those Rothschild Chateau something yes. that were like yes. eight bucks Mouton, of Mouton, 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 Mouton Cadet. Yes. 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 And that stuff was like $8 a bottle. And that's, that, that's why I really never got into wine until much later when I could afford something more than an $8 bottle of Mouton Cadet, which is what we're, <laughs> by the way, what we're drinking now is spectacular and so much better. And I really urge everybody legitimately who's listening to this to go out. Where could we buy, where can people buy your wine? Is there on tell chwine.com. Us, chwine.com? Yep, okay. only. It's the only place that we sell. And um, and when it when it's out, it's out and then we go into a new lot number. So what you sent us now lot 671 is that still online? Still available? Okay, cuz I might want to buy another case. Um, it's really good. It really is. It's one of one of my favorite wines. Are you a white wine drinker? Um, you know, you sent us white wine. I haven't tried the white, white, white wine yet. Excuse me. Um, I am. I love. I like the red wine better, but I'm a. I'm a rosé drinker. I'm equal opportunity. When it comes so to good wine. Tell me your experience with rosé. Oh, well, Ju- Julie and I came up with rose? saltier politics. Yes. While drinking a lot of rosé. We owe rosé. <laughs> we owe this podcast to rosé. Um, really? Yes. 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 Um, we love rosé. Whispering Angel was the rosé that I love. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I overdid it on Whispering Angel a little bit, so I've been a little bit <laughs> off rosé. <laughs> but it's very good. Um, so why? Do you guys have a rosé? Like we do have rosés. Rosés are like the super most hot category in the wine industry right now. I know. Um, and it's just, it used to be only a summer wine, and now it's become really an all-year wine. Um, and uh, I've, it's really interesting because I don't know if... if if you ladies remember Moscato, it's it's a sweeter white wine. Yeah, I'm not into sweet very, wine, so I'm not really that into it. Yeah, it it was super hot, like uh, I would say, like ten years ago, and everyone like produced, produced, produced a lot of Moscato, and then they were left holding the bag. And they're they're looking at rosé, and we're all producing a lot of rosé, and we're like, when is this going to end? When will consumers stop liking rosé? And it just hasn't happened. Well, I'll give you an anecdote about rosé, which has nothing to do with anything other than just completely um, 
non-empirical data, I think it was last summer or two summers ago, um, I was going through my whispering angel phase, which is when Emily and I mm -hmm. decided to do the salty politics. Um, first we decided to do the, the, the video shoot and then we decided to do the podcast. But uh, I live in the Upper West Side in New York and there was one store that I found in a really tucked away part of the Upper West Side, which I'm not disclosing because I don't want people to start going there. Um, it was the only liquor store that still carried Whispering Angel. Literally, no other liquor store had Whispering Angel, and it was like a, it was like the Soviet Union. Like people had a run on like alcohol, <laughs> and, uh, not bread, but alcohol. Whispering Angel specifically, and you could not find Whispering Angel. It was crazy, and I, I think it's still going on, right? It it is. I mean, I it's definitely a popular rosé along with um, I forgot the name of Angelina Jolie's and Brad Pitt's uh, rosé, which did oh. really really well too. I didn't know they made. Is it uh, is it really good or is it just because everybody wants Angelina Jolie's and Brad Pitt's? It, it's I I personally don't think it's awesome, but right. um, a lot of people do. I think you know again in the world of wine, the narratives are really hard to build. And so if you have a celebrity kind of associated, it makes it easier for a customer to be like, oh, I'll try it. And, and, and they'll just kind of go with it and be like, this is what I know about the wine. Yeah. I mean, didn't Clooney sell his tequila for a billion dollars? And by the way, yes. I've had, I like tequila a lot. I've, I've had that tequila. It's no better or worse than other tequila. But I guess if you're George Clooney, you're associated with it and it's good. And Randy, right. and Randy I, I would agree with you. It's, 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 it's decent, but it's not like, it's not better than a lot of the options that you have in tequila, which right. is a super crowded category, but they, you know, that celebrity piece just made it easier for people to be like, Oh, well, maybe I'll try it. And, you know, it's very difficult in, in the adult beverage industry from a marketing standpoint to really get the word out there, unless you're doing stuff like what we're doing on CH Wine, where we're building the narrative, we're trying to explain, we're trying to give customers information that makes their decision making much easier. I think I think exactly what you're doing, it makes it more of an equalizer, especially if you know how to use e-commerce and you know how to use social media and get the word out there. Because I recently did an interview, um, Bon Jovi's son started Hampton Water, which is actually a really good rosé, but... You know, he was telling me when he goes to different restaurants to try to get Hampton water in it, he's like, when they won't have a meeting with me, sometimes I'll just call up my dad and he'll come in the restaurant and then they'll take a meeting. And it's just like, okay, your, your product is good, but not many people have that privilege of having mm -hmm. John Bon Jovi. Bon yeah. like, hey, try this. That, that, that creates a beautiful um, runway. <laughs> right. Have you ever exactly. thought about that? Is it, is it just, what are they looking for? Are they looking for a piece of the company or what? I mean, is it even worth it? Is the juice worth the squeeze, I guess, is the question of having a celebrity um, advertising. For, what? for, for what? advertising for your, for your wine. Um, it's just very difficult. There are a lot of restrictions um, in how you can uh, market, like how you can, um, from an advertising standpoint, um, write your ads. So you have to be really conscientious about, um, you know, on the, like if we're talking pure like digital advertising, like most display only happens at night mm -hmm. um, because that's when adults are, are online. You have to be really conscientious about um, kids who are under 21. And so it puts a lot of limitations on what you can do um, and where and when the advertising is seen. And so that just creates a, lo a lot of confusion. And also just the, the laws of distribution of alcohol are just make it very difficult for a consumer to make sense of, you know, what is and what isn't. What, what's the biggest issue you run into with retailers? Or do you have a good story about that? Mm, with retailers, you know, the truth is I don't work with a lot of retailers because I'm, I'm, I'm all digital all the time. Okay. I would say the one thing I can say just like anecdotally from customers who are in retail is that um, they, they're overwhelmed by, by the amount of SKUs that are on the floor, but retailers are like, I'm going to put as much as I can on the floor because it's that per square foot. This is where I generate the most profit. Can you guys... So, Sorry, but can you guys sell yeah. to all 50 states or are there some 
states that you can't do e-commerce? No, there, we don't sell to all 50 states. There, we don't sell to Utah. Um, we don't sell to Arkansas, um, Alabama, uh, Tennessee, um, Kentucky, and Delaware, because those states, um, you know, just do not allow you to sell alcohol to their citizens. But anybody else can order. Go to ch.com? Chwine. Chwine.com. Yeah. Okay. Anybody from from all the other states, we can ship to. Um, and there are some, like some states, where um, there are limits on what a consumer can purchase into their home. Um, but it's you know it's 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 very reasonable. So let me ask you this because we have to wrap up. But um, yeah. I so we're drinking the slot six seventy one Meritage. Yeah. Um, it's delicious. What does it retail for? Um, so it retails for $24 a bottle, um, and it's the wine, the, the blend uh, comes from um, two wineries that sell their wines for $70 and $80, respectively. Um, it's just a, a really, it's one of those wines that at $24 delivers like just unbelievable value. It's really an incredible, and I'm not just saying this because we're interviewing you, I sincerely mean it. It is an incredible bottle of wine. I actually, I'm a, I'm a big red wine aficionado, and this is a great, great, great bottle of wine. I know you were just in France. I hope you were drinking. I was just, well, so I've been in France a couple of times this year. Um, I went to, actually, I went to Burgundy um, last, oh, I want to yeah. say, last December, and I'm not, a, I'm not a big Burgundy person. I'm more of a Bordeaux person, but uh, that was nice. And then this time around, we went to Normandy, and I, I'm not really, you know, that's not, that's not where the good wine is. They have something else no. there that's, that's, not equally, that's, not, that's not equal to the wine. But uh, yes, always, always good in France. But I have to say, this is just as good as any bottle I've had in Bordeaux. Really, really good. I'm so, I'm so glad you're enjoying it. It is a, actually a Bordeaux blend. Oh, it is. Okay. Well, it's delicious. Yeah. It's really That's good. That's the name Meritage. We're not allowed. Um, Meritage is the American version of a of Bordeaux. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Well, that's yeah. what it tastes like, and it tastes it's delicious. It's really good. I'm so glad you're enjoying it. And I I was just I was just in France too, and I was particularly curious about the restaurant that you went to, the truffle restaurant. Wow, you did your research. Yes. Have I, you been there? I well, I just I want to know. Like, is it was it good? So it's delicious. So I've, I've been there uh, a few times, and uh-huh. it's fantastic. What they do is they put truffles in everything, and it works better in some things than others. <laughs> I'm not sure that truffles, yeah. truffles work well with dessert, but uh, if you're ever in France, start out the Place de Monge, and it's uh, delicious, and I so mm-hmm. strongly recommend it. It's very, very good. Their wine selection is great. If you do the wine pairing with uh, the the it's a prefix hard to pair with wine because it has a very strong aromatic very strong aromatic but it worked really well uh whatever they gave us was delicious and i'm not even a huge as i said i'm not a huge sweet wine person i'm not a huge uh, dessert wine person but it's everything they did was amazing and so it's called a trufferie if you're ever there make sure to go i can't wait to go back i had the best time it was like so the, the country just feels like in a different headspace than, than it's been. It's so not in a good place was, right now. I no, feel. it isn't. It, it definitely isn't. And def, I would say that, you know, I, I actually went to a VC growing up. And it's very interesting to see what's going on in France and how everything is changing and how, you know, there's just a lot of anger and frustration and, and a, a big identity crisis. Matt, did you go to the Lycée in, in New York? Is that where you went? I went to the Lycée in Washington, D.C. Oh, okay. Excellent. Um, yeah. yeah, I agree with you. Most of my, you know, most of my cousins are French, and they're, they're the first to say it. They feel like France is not France anymore um, because it's just depressed. I mean, they just feel the country is just going through this massive depression. Um, kind of a psychological nervous breakdown <laughs> all around. Um, it's so French. That's so French. That's so French. It is. It is. But that 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 France of like you know we're France. We're great. We're fantastic. Is gone for this generation. It's kind of sad. Um, it is. It totally. It totally is. I, agree. I have to say, I love your podcast. You guys do such great stuff. And Emily, Thank you. I love your stories, and I love that you follow strong women, and that you do stories about strong women. It's 
so amazing to see. Well, we're happy to have you, a strong woman, on. And we are looking forward to whenever you visit New York next. We want to go drinking with you. Yeah, we want to. That's going to be hilarious. Yes, we want you to take (laughs) us to whatever your favorite wine bar is and show us the ropes. Because I'm not sure that we know what we're ordering when we go. I will definitely. I would love, love, love to do that. And um, just keep doing what you guys are doing. I just, I love it. It's so fun to listen to you talk. Thank you so much, and thanks for being on with us. And we look forward to talking to you soon and meeting you in person soon. Me too, me too. All right, take care. Have a great one, Jessica. Bye. Bye. Julie, that was a great interview. It was a fantastic interview. Um, it was great. It was del- The wine is still delicious. Can I tell you something that I am salty about, and this kind of goes right into, I think, everything that we need to talk about about sure. Ukraine, but... People who don't listen. So I was traveling this week and, you know, just... You were in Texas, were you not? I was in Texas and I was... uh, When people say, for example, at at the gate, they're like section A and people from section B and C go and don't listen. And it just... I'm that person. Wait. Yeah, they're like, section A may board now. And then you have section B clearly on your ticket. Okay. Like, don't go up. So I'm going to admit something, which I'm not proud of. What? I am that person... (laughs) Are you the one I give a nasty look to? Yes. And okay. secondly, you know that person that there's people in the off ramp who are getting off? Don't. Don't. And, and then there, and there's that one person in the left lane who's like, I'm not going to wait on this line in the off ramp. And then they go all the way. And in the very last second, they cut everybody off to go into the off ramp. I'm that person. I'm not proud, but I got places to go. I know everybody else does too. I get it. I get it. I'm not proud. There's no excuse. I've had a couple of glasses of delicious Cameron Hughes wine. But I'm that but, person. But speaking of people who don't listen, um, you recently did a tweet that said, Trump Twitter, please answer this. Is there anything that Trump could do? We're kind of going clap back right here. Uh, is there anything that Trump could do that would make you stop defending his behavior? Anything at all. And then you say, don't answer this question with a question and stow the whataboutisms for one moment. And how many people Literally. are like, sure, I can. He could Literally. you know, get people killed in Benghazi. Literally, the first response, Julie, is I would not defend him getting a blowjob in the Oval Office with a young, innocent intern whose life he ruined. What and about then, that person? Like, that who, who could that possibly like, be? Is that a whataboutism in the first response? Wait, wait. Could, and then if you keep reading, it's literally like, yeah, I wouldn't, you know, if he sold, you know, delivered pellets of cash to Iran, I wouldn't do that. Yeah, like people, list, like you literally said, don't do a whataboutism. And the first answer, and I'm like, this this is so easy for a clapback. It's so easy for a clapback. I know there are days when I really wish the clapback were still around. Maybe we should bring the clapback back, not in... Not that form, because I think it belongs to the, the Fox even, News channel. Even though it was our, our baby. It was our fine. baby, but okay, it belongs to the, to the Fox News channel. That's okay, but, but I wonder if we could maybe once in a while do a little video of, I, of I think we have responding to. to my Twitter Because this was, this was rich. It was rich. So what's making you salty? Well, it's people who don't listen. And I, I really, Julie, I just want to hear what you have to think about this whole Ukraine whistleblower situation i mean it's it's not i don't have any novel ideas that people haven't heard before other than to say this i think it's Um, concerning well there's two things right one is the hey nice country you know be ashamed if something happened to it mentality which i'm not the first to say but that's exactly what it was it was like a mob shakedown like hey you know your family is a really nice family be ashamed if something happens to your wife and kids um so Obviously, there's nothing novel about that. But the second part that's interesting to me, which I don't think people have focused enough on, is who benefits aside from Donald Trump by this? And the answer is, of course, of course, Vladimir Putin. And the answer for that is because uh, if you withhold foreign aid to Ukraine, and by the way, anybody who's saying, oh, Ukraine was a corrupt regime, of course, (laughs) really? Because we are bending over backwards for the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, who had an American green card holder beheaded. Um, and we don't seem to have a problem with that corruption. We overlook that. We overlook that, right, because Jared Kushner's, you know, got some sort of deal working with him. But we certainly overlook a lot of other corrupt regimes that we donate money to or give money to and foreign military assistance to. Um, but 
the person that really benefits from this, I mean, don't forget that Ukraine is literally a war, not, not de jure, but de facto a war with um, Russia. And Russia has already annexed the Crimea and the Crimean Peninsula. And it is, their soldiers are in eastern Ukraine. And who does Ukraine, who, when we withhold military aid from Ukraine, we are withholding military aid to what end? Why do they need military aid? They need military aid not because they're fighting a war with Sweden, not because they're fighting a war with Poland, not because they're fighting a war with France, because they're fighting a war with Russia. And when we withhold aid to Ukraine, we are withholding aid to them fighting against Russia. So once again, who benefits from Donald Trump not providing military aid against the specific instructions of Congress who appropriated this funding for this purpose? Russia. That's who, once again, Vladimir Putin is helped by. And his whole crazy notion, Donald Trump's crazy notion of saying, oh, the servers in Ukraine, the Ukrainians have something to do with this, takes Russia off the hook. Ukrainians didn't have anything to do with this. They didn't. You know who benefited from it? You know who did it? Putin. Russia did. I would have loved to see your face yesterday during the, uh, when Trump was talking with the Ukrainian president and he said, you know, it would really help everybody if we could if you get along with Russia or you guys would find I, what what at that moment what at that moment really went through your head? Well, you know what went through my head? It would you know, when Germany annexed the Sudetenland in nineteen thirty eight and okay, before everybody goes crazy, I'm not making Nazi analogies, I'm making historical analogies, right? When Germany when Germany annexed the Sudetenland in 1938. It, hilarious if Franklin Roosevelt would have gone to the Czechs and he would have said, you know, it would have really helped you guys if you just, I don't know, if you just got along with Hitler better. Yeah. Or better yet, in 1939, which is the, we're now the, the, the anniversary of that invasion on September 1st, um, if he had gone, you know, if, if the Allies had gone to the, the Poles and said, you know, I know that the, the Germans have, have just invaded, and I know that a few days later the, the Soviets have just invaded, but you guys would be a lot better off if you just got along better with the Soviets and the Germans. The reality is somebody took their land. Somebody literally invaded and stole their land, and somebody's trying to do the same thing in eastern Ukraine. And you know why? Because Vladimir Putin was on record in one of the most famous, if not the most famous quote that he's given in saying the greatest geopolitical tragedy of the 20th century is the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Well, you know how the Soviet Union gets re reconstituted? First and foremost, the three Slavic republics come to, there were 15 Soviet republics, the three Slavic republicans, republics, excuse me, Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus decide to become one country. Um, or not decide, somehow, somehow miraculously become one country. Belarus is, is a foregone, awful, totalitarian Russian fealty, for, for, for lack of a better description. Ukraine is standing strong. I mean, God bless the Ukrainians. I, I think they're in great shape. And uh, let me tell you what makes me salty. Yes. And this is very nuanced. People like Donald Trump refer to Ukraine as the Ukraine. And let me explain why there's a difference between Ukraine and the Ukraine. So Ukraine in Russian um, means the edge, um, like, the, like a physical edge, like, like the precipice, right? And so... If you refer to it as the edge and not edge, what you're basically saying is it's the edge of our border, the edge of our um, sphere of influence, however you want to interpret the edge of, right? The perimeter, the, the, the precipice, the, this is. So the edge, as opposed to edge, like Bono, edge, um, the edge. But if you're referring to it as the Ukraine, you're essentially, and this is really nuanced, and I get that people don't get this, but you're basically saying, this is the edge of our geopolitical sphere of influence. Whatever it is, it's, it's a part of us. But we refer to it as Ukraine, which is, which is what the Ukrainians asked for it to be referred to after they declared independence. It's just Ukraine. It's edge. I don't know. Edge is not the right word. I, I don't know how to, how to describe a perimeter, precipice, something. But 
it, it doesn't have the same connotation of this is part of our sphere of influence. Same thing with Belarus, right? Belarus is one thing. It used to be called Belorussia, which means white Russia, like the white Russian drink. Um, Belorussia was white Russia. They're not called Belorussia anymore. They're called Belarus, which I know is a very nuanced difference, but there is a difference to it, and that's what they started calling themselves after they declared independence. So Donald Trump, Maria Bartiromo, who I, who I personally love, but she said this in an interview a few days ago, it's not called the Ukraine. It's called Ukraine for a reason. Um, I know that it's a nuanced reason. I don't expect people to understand it, but now that I've explained it, please abide by it. Please don't make me salty again. I think that's referring to it as the Ukraine. No, that's super important, and I think especially in this day and age when language and nuances have become so, so important, it's. I think that's very educational, and it's a really good thing for people to keep in mind. Thank you. Yeah. All right, um, we have been at this for a long time. This through, is through, through an entire, almost an entire bottle of wine, as a matter of fact. We had to, though. We do. We had to. Um, I have to go pick up my child. Um, Emily, thank you for coming in fourth in the 40 and over age group. I am disappointed mightily at the fact that you did not come in first, being 29. I know. I know. No. Actually, all joking aside, thank you for running an incredible, incredible marathon. Uh, the people who organized that marathon race, the people who organized this race will be very shocked when I run the next time. And they'll be like, what happened? God, you're so fast and so good. And now you're coming in last. So but you'll have you. the biggest smile. I, if I, if I, either that or I'll be taken away in a wheelchair. One of the two. All right, everybody. See you next week. Later. Bye.